0: I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And what does it mean to be different? Who decided on the definition? Who exactly drew the boundaries around normal? Our guest this week explores where and why these definitions diverge and how we might remake them to better reflect the reality we all actually share. Janara Nirenberg is the author of Divergent Mind, a journalist with the UC Berkeley Greater Good Science Center and elsewhere, and she began her career in Asia reporting for Fast Company and CNN. She speaks widely on the rhetoric of psychology and its implications for society, and she appears at public events with the Aspen Institute, the Commonwealth Club, and the Neurodiversity Project. Janara, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, you are very welcome. Now, first, I wanna say right up front, Thank you for being so vulnerable in this book and in your work at large. I've spoken about this with other guests, but being honest and authentic, truly authentic, not the kind of faux authenticity we can sometimes see in social media today, in public can be incredibly difficult, regardless of who you are or what your background is. So I just wanted to put that out there.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that.
0: And second, this episode may potentially be not only the perfect but perhaps the only place to admit this in a safe way. Prepping for this episode and prepping for the podcast in general can often be mentally and emotionally excruciating, which sounds super weird to admit because I do the podcast for free (laughs) and I genuinely enjoy making it. But I found myself throughout the last week, especially struggling with serious bouts of near-overwhelming anxiety that manifested either via procrastination, self-doubt, self-sabotage, uh, an ever-present fear of failure. It's a long list. And the reason I'm unloading all of this on you and our listeners is that your book, Divergent Mind, is filled with similar such confessions from either yourself and many others, often people who are just incredibly gobsmackingly successful. And I felt a strong connection to many of the ways in which you described your own mind, Janara, and how it works. And your journey to being this vulnerable, to writing this book, began years ago. To put it in your words, quote, When I reached a state of delirious confusion and loneliness about what the hell was going on with me, I finally started opening up to others, end quote. And Divergent Mind is chock full of careful research and on-the-ground interviews, but it is also deeply personal because the journey that led to it was a deeply personal one. So before we get to the broader topic of neurodiversity, how did your personal journey in this space begin?
1: Yeah, thank you so much for for sharing. And I usually start out by telling people that I was a very sensitive kid, and you know, as many people are. And by sensitive, I mean, really just deeply curious about the world around me about other human beings, often what adults were talking about around me, I I just really took everything in. And that was, you know, great. In many ways, I did actually a lot of theater, I was involved in the arts, I grew up in the heart of San Francisco. And then later, I was deeply devoted to the study of philosophy and and social issues and things like that. I, I left high school at 16 and started college early. And so having a, a more sensitive disposition had many strengths right and many, many gifts as i got older became harder you know once you're out in the world on your own and you know you kind of have to adjust and the adjustment was difficult for me and you hear this a lot and i you know write about that in the book and all the interviews that i did As I got older, I was living in Asia and I was married and became a parent. The layers of adulthood, right, that I was taking on in my life demanded more of me, right? So it was hard as a very sort of sensitive person who simultaneously did very well, right, academically and in my career as a journalist. But I had a lot of struggles with switching gears and going from the sort of like hyper-focused state that I had in my work, you know, really focusing on an article or an essay or the research I was doing to managing everyday stuff, you know, running a house and being a parent, you know, switching from, you know, the groceries, the dishes, the managing sleep. And, And I had moved back from Asia to the US. And that's when a lot of the challenges became harder for me. And so the book really starts there, you know, this confusion around not knowing how to reconcile the successes in my life and this sensitive disposition with meeting the demands of modern adulthood.
0: I want to return to your personal story a little bit later. But first, I think we need to expand on what the definition of neurodiversity actually is to kind of rope in the listener. In the opening chapter of Divergent Mind, you write, quote, history, language, context, and power are deep determinants of who gets framed as normal or wrong. The concept of neurodiversity is in many ways a response to what has historically been a rather narrow definition of what is and is not, quote, normal. Throughout the book, you speak with many people who identify as neurodivergent, but are often quite different from one another in how they feel, think, and live their lives. So, what does it mean to be neurodivergent? How are neurodivergent people different from those who have historically been classified as quote-unquote normal? And how does the project of neurodiversity seek to widen the scope of how we see one another and ourselves?
1: So neurodiversity, the term itself really refers to neurological diversity, right? And the the term was coined in the 90s by the Australian sociologist, Judy Singer. And it had a very quick uptake within the autistic community, but its definition and its implication was far broader. So it really meant to be a framework, moving away from a way of thinking about the human mind in terms of normal and abnormal, and really looking at, well, hey, we have natural diversity, right? We've got biodiversity, we have diversity in so many different fronts. You know, isn't it time we started thinking that way about the brain. And, you know, there's so many people with different diagnoses, you know, whether it's anxiety and depression, bipolar, schizophrenia, autism, ADHD, OCD, dyslexia. I mean, there's a lot. And so it kind of turned into this movement around, well, Hey, like, let's, let's see the human mind differently. So you'll hear the term used a lot in like education and, and workplaces My focus was really on adults and adult women specifically. Because these subjects do get so much attention amongst kids and boys in particular, I was really interested in looking at, well, hey, what happens when all these people are grown up and out in the world? And how does that change how we fundamentally see one another? So for me, neurodiversity became this really important term and framework that I had actually been thinking about previously. And I was using different terms like temperament diversity or emotional diversity. And so I was really excited when I found this term neurodiversity. And again, the book kind of starts off there.
0: You mentioned Australian sociologist Judy Singer, who, as you noted in 1999, coined the term neurodiversity. But there's a phenomenon that can happen in any community, I think, especially ones that have a lot of really active engagement, and a moral through-line of acceptance and inclusivity, and that's when one segment of a community can come to define the whole of it. And this phenomenon can occur sort of organically, without ill intent, really, but the results can nonetheless cause harm. So, how has the definition of neurodiversity been changing as of late? You wrote about this in a recent Medium article, and why has it been changing?
1: Yeah, I really appreciate you bringing that up, and that's one of my goals: is for people to understand, you know, the power of this term and this framework, neurodiversity, because it really does have broader implications for all different types of minds. And these days is very commonly associated with autism, and of course, that's like absolutely wonderful, and we've seen a lot of changes within society, but. That falls short in terms of the intent of this term. So, something I've been pointing out a lot lately in my work and when I speak with people is you know, if you see a lot of major media headlines around neurodiversity, you know, like tech and things like that, it's almost always used as a synonym for autism, which it's not. And I think that does a disservice because I personally would like to see the same kind of advocacy and acceptance and integration of, you know, people have schizophrenia or who are bipolar. And I think we will get there, but, you know, just through various events and the sort of different communities and organizations that have really taken hold of the term neurodiversity, it has become associated with autism. And again, like that's great, but that's not the full scope.
0: Yes. As you said in your Medium essay, it's totally okay to say autism when one is talking about autism. But taking a wider umbrella term like neurodiversity, as it was originally intended to encompass a whole host of different ways of thinking and feeling, narrowing that down to one specific thing can often render people invisible in the same way that they've been rendered invisible for so long, which I think takes us to one of the most valuable insights that I took from divergent mind. And that's how we define what is known as, quote unquote, mental illness, and how that depends on the environment and the culture, which is constantly in flux. To quote from the book, quote, much of what became known as madness, especially in women, cemented around the time of the acceleration of capitalism in Western Europe. If context determines, quote, normal, and quote, abnormal, then it makes sense to give greater attention to broader historical, economic, and societal forces at work, end quote. You later referenced Dwayne and Sidney Schultz's 1959 book, A History of Modern Psychology, which emphasizes, quote, the importance of contextual forces, such as intellectual, political, economic, and social factors that influence the currents of psychology, end quote. And I think many of us, and I'm including myself here, tend to view any sort of field that is labeled scientific, like psychology, as inherently objective and unbiased. So, Janara. Why have I been so incredibly wrong?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think there's this dynamic, right, between the sciences and scientific research and the researchers themselves and everything else that's happening in the world, right? Cultural changes and economic shifts and everything, right? And so the sciences and the field of psychology in particular are very impacted by all of these broader forces. And the history of psychiatry and psychology, you know, that we've inherited here in the US, in terms of, you know, what started in in Europe and sort of made its way over here, psychology had to fight really hard in the beginning to be taken seriously, actually. And the only way that the field ultimately did become a more serious field was when it was integrated within medicine, like sort of. Hospitals and treated as like a real science that had medical underpinnings and things like that. Before that, um, in different different parts of the world, different approaches. You know, there was one short, brief era in Western Europe, for example, where people who were you know what we would call neurodivergent or had mental illness, there was a softer, gentler approach. Like, well, let's have you know, let's have gardens and let's have painting and, and things like that. So it wasn't this highly medicalized thing. When you look at how psychology evolved and and psychiatry as well, it it very much reflects the times. And so there's a lot of history there. And I detail that in the book. But most of it in the last 100 years has followed this kind of mechanistic approach, right? Like, x leads to y and you know there is a firm clear box that a, a human being fits into or the way their symptoms present and that's just really not the case right and that's what i started to discover was that like wow so many symptoms fall into different boxes they're really not as clear cut as i you know thought they were sort of just growing up in the world like everyone else when you think about psychology And so that got me thinking and and questioning. And it was very reassuring in the book when I was interviewing, you know, leading experts, neurologists, scientists, researchers, and, you know, people who nowadays are taking more of a neurodiversity approach, you know, they will say, yeah, the DSM is not just for the sake of categorizing people, but it's really meant to help people when they're merely in distress, You know, so when someone comes to their office and they really need help, they're suffering. That's when, you know, like a label can be really helpful. But beyond that, do we really need to try to fit people into boxes? You know, no.
0: There's a lot to touch on there. Where to start? So there's the angle of bias and how the field of psychology has for so long been male dominated, which has excluded the voices and bodies of women. And there's also the over-medicalization of parts of the human mind and body that maybe would not benefit from such a highly medicalized and kind of mechanistic approach. Let's start first with the bias part. You chronicle in the book how this historically male-dominated field of psychology has, by making male behavior and physiology the default, either ignored or pathologized the unique needs of women for most of the field's existence. You quote Angela Saini's book, Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong, and the new research that's rewriting the story. This was mind-boggling to me. Quote, until about 1990, it was common for medical trials to be carried out almost exclusively on men. End quote. I was eight. (laughs) That's not that long ago. So what are some ways that the historically male-centric field of psychology has either underserved women or ignored them entirely? And what are we doing to rectify it today?
1: This has been a huge issue, not only in psychology, right? It's been a huge issue in the broader medical field, like even looking at heart attacks and autoimmune issues and things like that. So, in my book, I'm particularly interested in the trait of sensitivity. And so, looking at how the experience of sensitivity has been pathologized over time. And so, you know, what we used to call hysteria we're now calling anxiety and because the field of psychology was initially developed by men you know I mean men were the ones in university and allowed to study all these things and shaped the field of psychology early on you know women were told that they were mentally ill if they wanted to work outside the house or experience of hysteria was blamed on you know the reproductive organs and things like that. So there's a very long history there of just pathologizing women. And the issue with bias now is that because those studies didn't require women to be as represented as men, a lot of the research we have now, specifically around things like autism and ADHD, are really based on the experiences of, of men and boys. And so the book chronicles what's called this lost generation of women. So a lot of women whose experiences of the world are different neurologically and also from a sensory perspective. But because so much research was on men and boys around autism and ADHD, uh, a lot of symptoms in women are not recognized. And women also, because of how we're kind of socialized and conditioned in the world, we also do what's called like masking, right? So we might like hide parts of ourselves to blend in. And that's sort of a long-standing phenomenon that's coming out a lot right now in research regarding autism and ADHD. So it's sort of twofold, right? You've got like how the history of psychology was shaped to begin with, then you have the policy requirements around research. But the main takeaway is that what happens in research, it takes a long time for that to then get implemented into practice. So it's only now that we're really confronting that and why, for example, we're starting to see a lot of women and girls who are now being recognized as having some form of neurological or sensory difference. And again, I am not attached to labels at all. I, I don't think that a person needs like a formal diagnosis, but even having access to information about these things and how they might present in women is so helpful. And so it's great. All the research, is now starting to come to light.
0: You talked about masking, which we'll get back to in just a bit, but I want to really hammer this point home for the listener so that we can all really understand and appreciate the importance of framing. Imagine you held a series of studies on height in, let's say, American society, and you capped your study at anyone between the heights of four foot five and five foot seven and only brought those people into the lab. And then you did your averages on what the average height of the American was based on the people who were admitted into the lab to study. Now, you might think that your study was accurate based on the people that you were bringing into the lab. And then your results would say, well, I guess between the people we brought in who were four foot five and the people we brought in who were five foot seven, the average height of the American is around five foot two. But you'd be leaving out anyone five foot eight and above. Therefore, all of your data would be skewed towards a very specific subset of people. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with the people you're studying. I mean, I have plenty of people in my family who are under five foot seven. They're great people, right? But if you only study people within a certain subset of society and then project that study's results out into the broader field of society saying that it's accurate, it's not. You're leaving a lot of data on the playing field, so to speak, and your data is corrupted by ignorance. I just wanted to hammer that home because I think people really need to understand how we're not only underserving women, which is a huge thrust of your book, but also underserving men who do not conform to whatever the norm of maleness is.
1: Absolutely. And thank you for pointing that out. The book does center the voices of women, but I have been so thrilled to hear from so many readers who are men. And I'm very appreciative that you have, you know, just really taken the book to heart and seen sort of the broader implications because it's absolutely true that the way psychology frames what is normal, what is not, who they base those definitions on, you know, that affects all of us in, in every single way, you know, in school and family and workplaces. And so I, in the book, just really try to emphasize how important it is just to have access to this information on, on research and, you know, the impact of psychology, because that ultimately is more empowering for like reducing stigma and reducing shame than, you know, any kind of label or diagnosis.
0: Yes. I think the one thing that Divergent Mind really hammers home is how important recognizing the bias that comes with framing and a person's standpoint can be and how detrimental it can be. If you've spent your whole life living in a desert, the forest is abnormal to you. But that doesn't mean that the forest, in and of itself, is a weird or abnormal place. It's just you've spent your entire life living in the desert. On framing, there's a quote in the book that really stuck out to me. Quote, If psychological framing is situational and contextual, what's certain is that the medical and psychiatric treatment of those who operate differently from a perceived norm tells a story of discrimination and pathologization, end quote. What frames are we currently being constrained by today? What are some movements or ways of thinking in 2022 that are limiting the ways in which we think about the way we think about the mind?
1: That's a great question. I think, you know, in many ways, actually, we have come quite far. And for me, since I've been really deep in this research for five or six years now, I now like live in this world. So sometimes I have to kind of remind myself and go back and like, remember what it felt like to be so confused in the world and not understand what was different. And why? Yeah, just like this weird kind of dissonance. I would say for me before kind of discovering this and really embracing it and really having it impact my life and my work and, and all of my various projects, I just didn't think twice, right? Like I just thought that there was kind of one way to be in the world. And for me, I felt I, I don't know, like I had to catch up in some way. Like there was some there was something I wasn't getting or something. And so When I started diving into like neurodiversity, I was like, okay, this makes so much sense, right? Like there's just sort of natural diversity and, you know, and how people operate and things like that. So the issue is most psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists, they're trained to think of like sort of the highest form of functioning, right? And their goal is, is genuinely to help people, of course. My concern is that if all of these therapists in the room are trying to get their clients to sort of function or perform in a way that they themselves think is normal, like the therapist, like what their idea of, you know, sort of, quote, normal functioning is, that's going to steer the therapeutic process, right? you know, versus a kind of neurodiversity approach is looking at, well, maybe we need to push back a little bit, you know, do we need to question what we think of as normal, you know, for the client, why are you putting so much pressure on yourself to perform in a certain way to be in a certain way? I think when you talk about the different framing and the different like paradigms that we're operating within right now, when it comes to like psychology, It's kind of case by case. It can depend on where the therapist went to school. It can depend on where the psychologist, their particular viewpoint. It's so individual and so subjective. And so I would say more broadly in the field, I mean, you're definitely seeing changes. There are some very kind of open-minded programs that are very well aware of neurodiversity or what we call mad studies, which is another kind of parallel to neurodiversity which is like destigmatizing madness and things like that. Those remain smaller, of course, compared to the larger medical paradigm that still dominates. But I think in this day and age what's exciting is that people can get on Google and find a person that might have an orientation that is more in line with neurodiversity, for example.
0: So, Janara, should we think of psychology more like how we think about philosophy? less like a rigidly scientific field limited by the necessities of a highly regulated space and more like a field of inquiry that can go wherever it may need to? Should we think of psychology more like how we think about philosophy and how do we strike the balance between the two?
1: That's an interesting question. I mean, I think it's difficult because when you're dealing with the human mind, right? And someone's emotional well being, you do want it to be grounded in something right? And it is great to have techniques and tips and tools and things like that. I think the concern is when the psychologist in the room might have too narrow of a definition of what normal is or what their goals are for their client. And I don't mean to sound harsh. Psychologists and therapists, like they do such wonderful work and I actually come from a family full of therapists and psychologists. So I have a lot of love for the field and and the practitioners. I just think that for a significant portion of the population, and again, my book focuses on, you know, the 20% of the population that has a heightened sensitivity, like an experience in the world where they're actually born with just like a more sensitive nervous system. Right. So that's a pretty big chunk of the population. And so, So your question around, you know, should psychology be treated like philosophy? I mean, not entirely, right? I think it's hard because you want someone to succeed in the world. Like you really do, right? I mean, that is part of satisfaction in life. So it's almost, it's a larger question. It's actually not limited to psychology, right? We're now talking about, you know, the subtitle of the book is thriving in a world that wasn't designed for you. A big portion of the book is also looking at attitude shifts that we need to make in our larger culture, right? That's things like, you know, in the workplace, if someone, if their behavior is a little bit different, or if they need a lot more quiet, if they don't want to chit chat, if they process things differently, they need time, you know, or in school, you know, again, I didn't really focus on children in the book. um, But school is a pretty clear case where, you, you know, you need to accommodate for different learning styles. I think this is also huge in the realm of like family and intimate relationships, you know, having a better understanding of your partner. And so all of these things, these larger societal forces, there's an kind of an ontological relationship there between the field of psychology and then what's happening in the world. And then, you know, something I also pay attention to is media, right? I think media, film, television play a huge role in reinforcing notions of normal. So I guess I'm hesitant to say that it's only about the field of psychology, right? Because I just, I just see this as there's so many forces at play. And I guess my concern is really on changing social norms, right? Changing narratives. And that happens on multiple fronts, not just within the field of psychology.
0: And you go into great detail in the book about how it's all interconnected, there are some folks who you spoke with who self-diagnosed, right? There were other people you spoke with who got a formal diagnosis, which was incredibly freeing for them because it gave them a kind of validation that they had been seeking and didn't know they needed for so much of their childhood and adulthood. As you said, it's all interconnected, but it does seem to, in some ways, come downstream from whatever the cultural and societal norms are, within the field of something like psychology and medicine. You go into great detail about how the DSM has changed over the course of our lives and even further back. And what is labeled as a quote-unquote disorder or a condition or a way of being changes constantly depending on what's happening in the world at the time, what our views are of each other. And so while I completely agree with you and want to yes and you there, that your book is so much more than just talking about psychology it does seem very interconnected. And a lot of the people you speak with do have some kind of formal or informal relationship with the field of psychology because they either self-diagnosed, went and got diagnoses, and talk about how the many ways in which that field has either underserved, ignored, or validated them. Every system we create is just a result of the human condition and where we are as a people. And I I found that a really fascinating part of the book.
1: Yeah, I think the main takeaway is just you know, whatever is happening in psychology, whatever is happening in the mind of someone in their own thought process about who they are, about how well they're doing, their happiness, their satisfaction in life, all of those things are partially determined by the historical era. And that is very important for people to know, right? You know, as I said earlier, women who wanted to work outside the home were, you know, labeled hysterical, you know, at one point. The African slaves in the United States were labeled as mentally ill when they wanted to escape to their freedom. It shows how powerful and ridiculous a lot of these labels are and how relative it is. And so I think that's important for people to know and that's very freeing. It's very liberating to know that However, you are in the world, however, you operate with integrity. But just because it doesn't match up to what you are told that you need to be doing or the way you are in the world, there's no sort of reflection for it in the media or, you know, whatever psychologist you're seeing. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. It doesn't mean that you are abnormal. Or if you are very different, too, there's nothing wrong with that either let's focus on historical context and really realize the role that it plays in impacting people's perception of themselves.
0: And you talked about the importance of representation in media. Are you familiar with the new show As We See It? I'm not. It is a show on Amazon Prime about three roommates on the autism spectrum and how they go about navigating the world around them. And obviously, as we've discussed here, neurodiversity is much broader than simply autism, but it's being very well received as a compassionate exploration of what autism is. And all three of the actors who play the three main characters are on the autistic spectrum themselves. So it's just something that popped out to me as you were talking about the importance of representation.
1: Oh, yeah, that's great. You know, as a big fan of theater and film and I really love when Hollywood gets it right about these things. And I do think that there will be a push in the next 10 to 20 years for representation of neurodivergences of all forms. So that's exciting.
0: Let's take it back to the personal, because we've been in the kind of broader, systemic, structural world for a little bit now. But a lot of divergent mind is focused on the personal, either personal stories of the people that you spoke with, largely women, or your own stories. And you mentioned this a bit earlier. You were in high school in a theater program at the San Francisco School of the Arts. Uh, You were a circus artist as a child. In an interview with Invisible Talks, you said, quote, from a young age, I was always moving, dancing, and standing on my hands. At the same time, I was deeply curious about people's minds. I watched people and asked constant questions about their behavior, end quote. And I really connected with that. You're probably seeing a theme here of Michael connects with Janara. When I first got to graduate film school, I realized that this is a rather common combination among artistic types, this kind of potent merge of playful physical behavior and a fascination with the behavior of others. But some folks I know, are deeply introspective and reflective, but not very physical, I'd probably fall into that camp. While others who are intensely expressive physically, rarely introspect. They're usually just very present and in the moment. You discuss in the book how for you, this combination is at the heart of what makes you neurodivergent. And I'd love for you to share more about what that means for you.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's so sweet. I just really appreciate the way you're seeing those different threads and it really means a lot as a writer to have such great questions, you know, that are really thorough and comprehensive. So, I do think this is an interesting combination and I love that, you know, your own background is in film as well and you know, you will find that a lot. I've certainly found that that a lot of neurodivergent people have some connection to like film, the arts, and theater and I actually am fascinated by this going way beyond, you know, even just the book, but I'm I'm very interested I think that a large percentage of people in in Hollywood are largely neurodivergent and we've seen that with of course things like bipolar, we've we've seen that a lot, but I I do think that there's probably a lot of autism and ADHD and and other forms as well. So, yeah, your question around, you know, the kind of like physicality, but also being deeply curious. For me, personally, I was a gymnast and I was a theater artist and did lots of different things, again, like in the heart of San Francisco. And then I was always very kind of like philosophically minded as well. And again, you know, to try to paint a picture, it's just kind of someone who just really takes everything in, right? And, and I found this over and over again, when I was interviewing people, For the book. So, yeah, I mean, the experience of neurodivergence, again, that term is broad. And in the book, I really focus on the way the trait of sensitivity manifests in like five categories. So, you've got high sensitivity, which is kind of just like a personality trait, being strongly affected by things. Then I looked at autism and ADHD, of course. Then I looked at synesthesia, which is the senses getting crossed. So seeing colors with numbers. And I particularly focused on something called mirror touch synesthesia, which is where a person literally like physically and emotionally feels what another person feels. And it's been well documented by Harvard neurologist, Joel Salinas. And so I interview him in the book. And then I looked at sensory processing disorder, which is often noticed in kids where they're just Very affected by like physical textures and smells and things like that. So, again, all of these things sort of speak to the experience of heightened sensitivity. And so, the people I spoke to in the book and the experts as well, I think the physicality component is in some ways, it's like a release of energy, right? Like, so if you've got someone who's sensitive and taking in a lot all the time it's just sort of a natural way to like expend energy similar to like jogging or running, which I do a lot of now actually as an adult. And then in parallel with the deep curiosity and and things like that, again, you know, it's, it's an experience of just taking in a lot. And so many sensitive and neurodivergent people I spoke to, they do tend to become therapists themselves, or they become writers and journalists, or they go into film and theater um, and things like that. I think like what you're saying, sort of intense physicality, but also pursuing some kind of work that allows for their sensitivity, it's very common.
0: There were points when I was reading this book and learning about you that Certain other things that I've seen you write uh, or talk about uh, suddenly began to make sense. Like my mind thinks a lot in kind of visual metaphor. And I do this with everyone I meet, right? There's like a visual quilt, you know, the let's call it the Janara quilt in my head. And, you know, when you first start learning about someone or talking with someone or reading their work or whatever, pieces of the quilt just kind of start filling in. And as you learn more and more, different colors get added to the quilt, stitches start intertwining with one another, you begin to see a fuller picture of who a person is. And something that might have seemed isolated or unrelated to another thing, all of a sudden, you realize is actually quite connected. So, a lot of the thinkers that you're, that you're a fan of, right? You mentioned them in a medium essay, Nuanced Thinkers Rock 2021. Someone like Sheena Mason or Megan Down, a former guest of this podcast, Brianna Joy Gray, right? Kate Johnson. What I connected with so much When I had a better understanding of how your mind worked, and of course, I want to let you jump in here. I don't want to speak for you. But when it comes to politically adjacent issues or political issues, I think people can be misidentified as taking a quote-unquote side, either on the left or the right, when really what it is, is trying to wrap one's mind around, especially if one is neurodivergent, wrap one's mind around how the world works. There's a quote here that really stuck out to me. Actually, this was from the interview with Invisible Talks. You said that you find inspiration in the disconnect you feel with the way societal structures are set up and the cognitive dissonance it creates inside of your mind. And once I read that, I felt like I had a better understanding of why, at least in some small way, you follow the thinkers you follow. Because in many ways, those speakers, whether it's Sheena Mason, Mega Daum, Kate Johnson, et cetera, are trying to pull at that same thread. They're trying to get underneath whatever the structure is, and grapple with it. Oftentimes, these thinkers get labeled as either left or right. Brianna Joy Gray, similar thing here, right? But really, and I want you to jump in here in just a second, I feel attracted to those same thinkers for a similar reason in that I'm attracted to how they're trying to play with, deconstruct, or get beneath the structures that kind of operate society. Am I on the right track here?
1: Absolutely. Once again, I, r- I really appreciate the way you're able to weave all of that and, you know, in such a, a nuanced and thoughtful way. And yes, I mean, I think there is a lot of a lot of resonance here. I know you and I have talked previously. And, you know, it seems like online, many of us have sort of connected with one another, which is so exciting and and heartwarming. I just think that, you know, for all the folks that you've mentioned, and that yeah, I wrote about on Medium and, and elsewhere, I so appreciate people who are thinking and writing in a nuanced way. And I think I personally just feel very seen. I very much just connect with that because that's how my mind works. And so, yeah, for all of us who are engaged in sort of issues and sort of the intellectual climate of today, and we're concerned and we're engaged and we like to talk with one another – I think many of us are motivated by, okay, what is underneath, right? Like what is the core, like the heart of human experience that transcends whatever words and labels and frames and dynamics that happen to be present right now in this historical moment, right? How do we sort of bulldoze through all of those things? And I think that is largely the struggle of us as writers and communicators and and artists, right? We're trying to always connect and bridge across, again, like all of these just words and things that we've created, these sort of artificial constructs that humans have designed to help kind of organize the world, but that we know don't actually define it. I personally connect to that for sure, through the world of psychology, which was the focus of this book. But my own background is in the larger world of journalism and political philosophy. I designed a major in political theory and and race relations. I grew up in the heart of San Francisco in a very multiracial family, multiracial neighborhood, school. I've written elsewhere that my sister and I actually, we were always the minority as white kids, actually, like in school and in our neighborhood. And so my own experience in the world, my own sense of self and identity has never really matched up to a lot of the constructs that I would see out in the world, like in the media and movies and and magazines and things like that. And so I think What's so exciting and is such a breath of fresh air right now that I'm discovering, you know, and connecting with you and, and all these other thinkers, you know, it just feels like finding other people who similarly are very hungry to see through all of these constructs, but who are also really actively breaking through.
0: Yes. You know, when we're kids, You know, there's that stereotype of the kid who is very young and just keeps asking why. You'll have an adult and a child, you know, the adult will say, the sun goes down at 6pm. The kid would be like, why? Well, because the world is rotating in XYZ and the sun is on an axis and the kid's like, why? Well, because, you know, and you can get all the way, I think Calvin and Hobbes even parodied this a little bit. Calvin's dad at a certain point, because he's run out of actual truthful answers, just starts making up ridiculous lies just to get Calvin to shut up. But that curiosity, right, the asking why, especially when it comes to human made structures, why are things the way that they are, often gets kind of uh, figuratively beaten out of us, right, by society as we get older. One, either because we're just supposed to know things by a certain age, or because a topic's either taboo, or difficult to talk about, or is fraught historically that we're just not supposed to question it, right? And not in any kind of antagonistic way, but just trying to understand the thing behind the thing or what journalist Amanda Ripley calls the understory of an event, a place, a relationship. And I don't have a broader question there, but I'm glad that you keep asking those questions.
1: (laughs) Thank you. And you too, you're doing such a great job with that, with your podcast.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you. But you know, another way that I connected with you, Janara, tell our audience about your camera lens. Because that is something that really stuck out to me, the zooming in and the zooming out and how it can be a real strength when you're working on something creative or when you have control of what that camera lens zooms in on, but how it can also be a real detriment or a handicap if you can't control what it focuses on and what it doesn't.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the term that is helpful is this term hyper focus. So again, I think for people who are very deeply curious or sensitive. And again, whether there's some kind of label or diagnosis or not, I've had to learn to kind of harness it, I guess. I think my default mode is to focus on things like very intently, which is super helpful, right? When it comes to work and research and trying to get to the bottom of something, you know, as a journalist, it might be less helpful when it comes to just like, You know, everyday stuff, someone in your home, like your family, like does something that bothers you or something. It's kind of like learning to zoom out and just kind of let things slide or, you know, just not be affected strongly by something. I mean, I think the way you described it is what it is. It's a process of learning how to zoom in and how to zoom out. And it really comes with practice. I think. You know, five or six years ago when I was at the beginning of this journey, I didn't know all of this yet. So it was hard and I had to kind of learn it over time. But I think of hyperfocus is just like a huge gift and it really makes me like who I am. There's not much more to it really than just like, you know, really learning how and when to use that like kind of when it's appropriate. And that's another big thing I think about being neurodivergent in the world, right? It's, it's a two way thing, right? We all want to live happy, successful lives. So it's not about just being like, Oh, I, I'm just like different, I'm very big on integration, right? Like learning how you can sort of adjust to the world and then maybe how the people in your life can also adjust to you, right? And sort of create this nice, like happy medium. But yeah, the hyper thing really learning how to manage that comes with practice.
0: And you talk about this hyper-focusing specifically in a chapter that is largely dedicated to exploring what couples counseling looks like for the neurodivergent. You were speaking with Massachusetts-based therapist Eva Mendez when you talked about how when she was describing what hyperfocus looks like and the strengths and the potential detriments to it and how hyperfocusing on the wrong thing can lead to problems in one's personal life and one's relationships with others, how seen you felt speaking with her. And I similarly felt, (laughs) I felt seen watching you feel seen, because I never used the metaphor of the camera lens. For me, it was um, like uh, my mind was a pebble in a stream. When it was healthy, I could control where the pebble in the stream went. And if I wanted to go over here and kind of linger with this rock for a little bit, maybe I'm working on a project or writing something or just really into a, a movie, I can let it go over there and hang out with a little branch. But oftentimes throughout my life, the pebble will get caught on something in the stream against my will to mix metaphors here, like a wool coat catching on like an errant tree branch while you're on a walk. And sometimes I can't control how long it'll be caught, and I don't even know how to get it free. And so the anxiety that can be related to that, when you have a tendency to hyperfocus and you can't always control what your mind focuses on, especially when it's focusing on something that might not even be true. Years ago, this is before I, I started going to therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy. I became obsessed with this one instance of one of my best friends and he and I were at dinner. This is years ago. We've talked about it. He made some comment that I just latched onto and I was like, oh, our our friendship is over, which is insane. It was a totally benign comment, but I couldn't stop focusing on it. And the longer I focused on it, the more extreme it became. It was like I had my fingers on like a volume dial. And the longer I kept my finger on the dial, the louder I turned the volume until all of a sudden there was nothing I could hear except this one thing that he said in a dinner that was totally inconsequential that he hadn't thought about for months. And this is all to say that I just think that the contents within this book and the way in which you talk about different ways of thinking and the way that you empower people to look deeper into how they think to try and detach the shame that can come from feeling broken or misaligned with wider society is just really important. And there were just so many times when I was reading the book that I either felt really personally connected with what was going on, or I learned something really valuable about people who thought differently than me. This podcast is really just becoming a very intense advertisement for the book, which I'm totally okay with. Yeah, it just, it really connected with me because I think that there is, I imagine you understand what I'm saying here, Janara. When you start compartmentalizing parts of yourself to fit in, or you start to negate parts of yourself because you feel that they're broken or malformed in some way, it really eats away at you. It feels like a kind of death because you're having to sacrifice parts of you that make you who you fully are. And so I think one of the reasons that this interview was difficult to prep for has absolutely nothing to do with you or the book. It's a brilliant book, but it's just, I felt so connected to its mission. And I hope that more people read it.
1: Thank you so much. And I really appreciate everything you're sharing. And I'd love to kind of respond because I think, you know, it could be for all the listeners, you know, if it's helpful or someone might really be having these burning questions as well. But I think it's so fascinating what you're describing about, you know, like the pebble and the stream and and getting stuck on things. And even that I think is something that people can get better at with time. Like the more you just like have practice. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of frames, like even in your own mind, being able to kind of just see it differently, kind of lightens the sting a little bit. I would say that something I've learned personally is also going back to like the physicality stuff. Like, I've learned personally that like going for a run or something, it just kind of somehow like loosens that energy. And then, you know, on a totally different topic, which we could get into maybe another time. But when someone does get kind of like stuck on something, I have found that it usually has to do with something entirely different than whatever the thing that they think it is. Maybe you learned that as well. But it's like, There's something way underneath there that is just like sitting, that is waiting to be recognized or like tapped into. And sometimes it's just like a very subtle emotion, you know? And I think that can actually be hard for some like sensitive neurodivergent people, like just very clearly identifying what it is. Like, you know, it could be anything, right? From like anger or even like hunger. So there's that. But I also just think that it's often not linear. You know, it's not linear. Like, I feel like a lot of people that I've talked to, and even sometimes for myself, something won't become clear to me for like a few days or something. And I think, again, for me, I have learned and grown so much, even just in the last few years. So, a lot of the things that I wrote about or struggled with, it's very different now, right? Because I'm on the other side of this. Like, this book has, you know, it's out in the world now. And just to say that there's a process of like learning how to move through those moments that I think people with practice can get better and better at. I just kind of wanted to comment on that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think that's really well said. And the reason that I wanted to share all of that with you was not just because I felt a connection to the words you were writing and I would have found this book so incredibly helpful, let's say 10 years ago. I want to do in my own small way what you do with the Neurodiversity Project and with Divergent Mind, which is to create the world that we want, we all have to be more open in talking about the ways in which we are neurodivergent, right? The ways in which we might be quote-unquote different from whatever the mainstream might be. The ways that we feel limited because we're either limiting ourselves or because society limits the ways that we can express ourselves. And so, I wouldn't be disclosing this in, say, an episode on you know, self-driving cars. That would be a little off-brand. But in a topic like this, we're talking openly about the ways in which we think and feel is a crucial step in getting to the next place. I thought there might be some value in sharing that. And on a similar note, I was talking with my sister, who lives in San Francisco, about your book. And one thing that she really connected with was the topic of masking, which you talked about a little bit earlier. In the book, you write, quote, girls and women have been taught from an early age to blend in. According to researchers and the many women I interviewed for this book, often women hear the common refrain, oh, she's just sensitive. That's how girls are, end quote. And my sister is a highly successful professional in San Francisco, which prides itself, at least on the surface, on its progressive, inclusive attitudes. But she says that in many ways, companies within the city still frame male bodies and attitudes as the default. And I've received her consent to share this next bit. She actually insisted that I do it because she felt so passionately about what you're championing here. She has premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which is a much more severe form of premenstrual syndrome. It's a rather severe medical condition that needs attention and treatment and often necessitates lifestyle changes. But the workplace writ large in San Francisco and throughout the nation, even ones that champion themselves as being progressive It's just not built around the natural, biological, recurring needs of women. In her experience, and she wanted me to relay this, women are not allowed to work from home during regular and often severe periods of physical or emotional distress, like what she experiences often with PDD. And again, this is all caused by a completely natural and biological process, and women are disallowed this because male bodies are held as the default and female bodies are then framed as aberrant. You don't really touch on this in Divergent Mind, which again is more focused on things like sensitivity and other things relating to the mind. But I think it is all of a piece because though we're making a lot of great strides when it comes to maternity and paternal leave, in other ways it feels like we're still stuck in 1989, you know, the year before women were finally started to get included in these focus groups and studies. She wanted me to mention that to you because she connected with that part of the book. The fact that women and girls their bodies and the ways that they think and the ways that their bodies work are not seen as the standard, even in highly progressive cities like San Francisco.
1: Yes. And I really appreciate that. And, you know, thank you for sharing. And, you know, for sure, the topics that I touch on in Divergent Mind, you know, very much complement other books that are focused more on sort of physical, you know, issues within medicine and the ways in which women's experiences of their bodies and, and physical health are also very, very marginalized. And they continue to suffer within the medical field. You know, doctors are always brushing off symptoms. And then, yeah, you see the same thing in the workplace. And, you know, I think some of this comes back to you know, when things are hidden, when things are invisible, when there's when things are stigmatized, right, when there's not the norm of speaking openly, right, then women continue to suffer. And so her experience is very resonant. And there is actually a fair amount of crossover between women who, who are sensitive and who do have some form of autoimmune issue actually. And that's a little bit more anecdotal. I'm sure there is some research happening on that. And that doesn't, you know, directly relate to your sister's experience. But I wouldn't be surprised actually if in the future there was a lot more sort of coming together of the ways in which women experience heightened sensitivity, both psychologically and physically. I I think that actually will be a big area of research in the future.
0: Yes. And it should be. I just think that like you're doing with the Neurodiversity Project, whether it's things that have to do with how we think, feel, or how our bodies act, we really need to do a better job of reframing what is quote-unquote normal, especially when oftentimes that definition does not include 50% of our population.
1: Exactly. Yep. That's the, (laughs) The whole idea is sort of expanding, reframing, opening up these conversations. And I certainly try to do that with the book. And then the Neurodiversity Project is this series of events and interviews I've been running. And now I, you know, I launched Divergent Literary, which supports neurodivergent writers and, you know, entering the publishing world. So, you know, all of us, like you were saying, we try to make change in whatever way we can.
0: I think this segs well into the final question of our talk. And I so appreciate the time that you've made today. In the concluding chapter of Divergent Mind, you declare that, quote, the way we do medicine And the way we talk about sensitivity and difference as a society needs to be reframed, end quote. And then a sentence later, you write, this is not about autism or ADHD or women or men. This is about the fundamental way in which we view, handle, and talk about difference and how we empower or disempower people, end quote. This is so beautifully articulated. So, Janara, when it comes to neurodiversity, to creating a better and more inclusive environment for all of us. What are some concrete steps that we can take at the local level in our own lives? Or to put it another way, where do we go next?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I think it does start in changing the way that you see things, right? And the way you frame your own world, your own experience of the world. And I think for me, I try to do that with my book, Divergent Mind, And people can do that in whatever way is necessary, you know, whether you're trying to open up when it comes to the political space or people in your family who might be different or your own experience of the world. So I think it's important to be open, be curious, be really open to learning and seeing things differently, having your own mind sort of shift. And then as you expand that lens, You know, when you're encountering the world, when you're encountering other people in your life, you know, kind of pausing, stopping, maybe observing and rethinking how you respond to people around you, respond to difference. And you'll start to see like, oh, wow, like some of my responses to things are kind of preconditioned, right? And so there's definitely like a freeing that happens when you're not programmed any longer right to be you know let's say very judgmental right of sort of different displays of behavior or thinking or emotions and that kind of thing and then slowly that starts to affect you know your experience in in every sphere whether it's work or school or family that's where to start and if we all do that right then that's when institutions start to change systems start to change and then we have that broader, cultural and narrative shift of, you know, changing social norms, how we view one another and how we engage with one another. That's the process. That's the goal.
0: Jannara, we have barely even scratched the surface of what this book covers. And so I would like to say to those listening right now, however you identify neurodivergent or not, this is a book for you because either the book will speak to you personally, as it did with me, or will help you better understand the people you love in your life. So Janara, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your work with this book and with your larger neurodiversity project and divergent literature. And thanks so much for your time. I had a really great time talking with you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This was great.
0: Tune in March 15th for a conversation with Joanne Samuel Goldblum and Colleen Shaddix, authors of Broke in America. Thank you for listening, and wherever we go next, I hope you'll be there too.